Compared with other years, New Year's Eve in Melbourne and the suburbs was remarkable for the orderliness of the crowds which waited for the birth of the new year, there being an entire absence of the hooliganism which in certain suburbs had made the occasion one of anxiety to many householders. In previous years, exuberant youths sought it necessary to remind peaceful residents of the advent of the new year by removing gates from their hinges and carrying them a considerable distance, and by disfiguring freshly painted fences and shop shutters and doors by daubing on them with the number of the newborn year. To such an extent had this nuisance grown that in several suburbs the residents formed vigilance committees for the protection of their properties. Special patrols of plainclothes police on bicycles were dispatched to different suburbs, but reports received from the suburban police stations indicate that the work of the patrols was exceedingly light, as in no instance was any tar used and no complaints of damage done were received. This New Year's Eve report comes to us from the Argus, Melbourne, Victoria. I'm Broderick Matthews, and for Friday the 2nd of January 1920, this was the news. This Was The News is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. Straight out of newspapers from across Australia, without change or editorialising, I'm here to share the news that was one more time. Continuing on with stories from New Year's Eve, this piece from the Armadale Express, a New England general advertiser in New South Wales. The opening of the new year was ushered in by the usual ringing of church bells and the whistling of the railway engines, but no other demonstrations were in evidence, and 1920 came in quietly and modestly, everything being very quiet before 12.30. The usual midnight services were held at some of the churches. We have not heard of any mischievous pranks being played, and the fire brigade did not give the fireworks display. Moving on to New Year's Day now, and this report on New Year's Day in Broken Hill from the Barrier Miner. The day was almost ideal in respect to weather conditions, and the two picnic trains which left for Silverton and Stevens Creek respectively took out considerable numbers of people. It was in the Central Reserve, however, that Broken Hill really spent the holiday. Family parties flocked to it during the day in scores, some arriving even as early as eight in the morning, with picnic hampers loaded with provisions for a long day. In the early afternoon, so many children and adults were present that very little of the ground was to be seen. Besides their own pastimes of gambling, reading, sewing, knitting and gossiping, there were also other diversions for the people. Crowds watched the bowling enthusiasts at play and ladies at croquet. The monkeys were in a particularly frisky mood, much to the delight of the children, while at about 5pm, two of the captive kangaroos commenced a boxing bout. So dense was the crowd which thronged the fence that latecomers on the scene of action were unable to see any of the sport. Moving down south now from the Mercury in Hobart, Tasmania, looking at when the billy boiled on Belrive Beach. One of the joys which the city dweller and his wife and family appreciate when they visit any of the many delightful beaches within easy reach of Hobart is the picnic lunch, and especially its billy tea. But it must really be billy tea, brewed in the orthodox style over a wood fire, or else it loses something of its exclusive flavour. 
Yesterday, however, Belle Reeve had a New Year's gift in store for its visitors, in the shape of a policeman to put down the billy-boiling habit. He patrolled the beach to catch the fire fiends, and when he caught them, they were duly informed of their heinous offence, and their names and addresses entered in the handy little notebook, which is such a useful part of a man in blue's equipment. No one quarrelled with the policeman. He was only doing his duty, an unpleasant duty with which to start the new year too, and he did it with much tact. But the picnickers had a lot to say about the unkindly nature of the New Year greeting meted out to them by Belle Reeve, and not a few declared that if Belle Reeve cannot treat them better than this henceforth, they will picnic elsewhere. Moving on to other news now, and a story of daring bank robbers comes from the Propeller in Hurstville, New South Wales. Sometime between Saturday and Monday morning, an attempt was made to blow open the strongroom door of the Government Savings Bank, Hurstville, opposite the railway station. Nobody resides on the premises, and when the manager, Mr B. A. Bryant, arrived at the bank on Monday morning, he found that a window at the rear had been forced open and an unsuccessful attempt made to blow open the door leading to the strongroom. The window where entrance was effected by the would-be robbers is very high, and to reach it the men climbed a ladder they had secured from the yard of the adjoining premises. The intruders placed a charge of gel at night in the lock of the strongroom door, but the explosion was not sufficient to burst the door open. Consequently, they went away without securing any loot. The lock was, however, put out of action, and it was with difficulty that it was opened by the officials. The manager was in the bank on Saturday, and everything was then all right. Had the robbers succeeded in getting into the strong room, their reward would have been small, as very little money was in the vault at the time. From that story of a daring robbery to one that's a bit more creative, this report from the advertiser in Adelaide. A story of a sensational chase after a thief was told by a youth who rushed into the Melbourne detective office on Sunday afternoon, apparently in an excited state of mind. He told Detective McGinty that his father and mother, having gone to church, he went out for a walk and returning at 11.30am to his home in Bridge Road, Richmond, he saw a man coming from the back door of the house with both hands full of banknotes and silver. He seized the man, who threw him to the ground and, rushing to the street, mounted a bicycle and rode away. The youth, according to his own story, then jumped on another bicycle and followed the robber down Punt Road, into Swan Street, along the electric tram line, over Princess Bridge, into Flinders Street, and along Elizabeth Street as far as Royal Park, where he lost sight of the man. Detective Ashton accompanied the boy to his home, where it was found that £71 had been taken from a wardrobe. Under a searching cross-examination by the detective, the youth admitted that his story was a fabrication. During his parents' absence, he said, he had opened the wardrobe with a duplicate key and taken the money. He then rode to Royal Park, planted the money and reported the fictitious robbery to the detectives. The money was subsequently recovered from the hiding place in Royal Park and was returned to the boy's father. Moving on now to a story of holiday accidents from the Argus in Melbourne, Victoria. A remarkable escape from death was experienced yesterday afternoon by Olive May Beesey, three years of age, who was travelling with her parents on the express from Albury to Melbourne. 
when the train was running between Newmarket and Kensington at about half past two o'clock, the child momentarily eluded the vigilance of her parents, toddled into the corridor and fell through an open door. Workmen were engaged on the line at this spot and they saw the little girl drop from the train, land on her feet and roll over onto another set of rails. They immediately hurried to where she lay, fully expecting to find that at least she had been seriously injured. Their surprise was great when the little girl, who was severely shaken, began to cry and rose to her feet unsteadily. At this moment, another train came up on the line onto which the child had fallen, but the engine crew had noticed the child's fall and quickly brought the train to a standstill. The express was also stopped and the child's father alighted and carried the little girl to the Newmarket station. Examination at the children's hospital disclosed that no bones had been broken and she was able to leave for home with her parents. Finally, another story out of Melbourne, this one from The Age. The next generation of husbands should be a happy set if the girls now being trained in domestic arts schools prove sufficient to go round. Although only a recent development in the education of young girls, the courses provided by the education department have proved very popular and the demand for the establishment of additional domestic arts schools is growing. Included in the subjects taught at these special schools are cookery, domestic hygiene, home dressmaking and home management. The training, as far as the opportunities permit, is thorough. A girl is obliged to buy, as well as cook joints and vegetables, to wash and iron correctly. A new kind of washing day is fast dawning. Needlework in all its phases is taught, and generally speaking, a girl turned out after her two years course should be able to efficiently manage a home. We're going to take a short break from the news for these advertisements. Do not be without Clement's Tonic in winter. During the winter, the system is often menaced by various chest and lung troubles, but the system that is strongest best resists them. It is a good plan to keep the stomach healthy, the appetite keen, the body strong by the use of Clement's Tonic during the winter months and thus ensure against winter risks. Clement's Tonic is recognised everywhere as the nerve and blood medicine. All chemists and stores sell it, Get it and get well. Walls and ceilings that never crack, make them of beaver board. Easy to put up any time of the year without muss or litter. Beaver board makes your house warmer in winter, cooler in summer. No repair bills for beaver board lasts as long as the building. Saw beaver board like wood. Nail the panels to studding, paint, then put on decorative strips over edges. You can also get good results by nailing it over old lathe and plaster. Wholesale distributors Gunnison Le Measure Limited, stocked by timber and hardware merchants. Welcome back. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was the news for the 2nd of January 1920. Moving on to current issues now, this story out of the Brisbane Courier in Queensland, the problem of water conservation. Adequate water conservation is one of the most important problems in Queensland, and the recent dry season has shown it to be urgent, even in the capital city of Brisbane. 
The progress of the state depends on production, and while this is essentially a producing state, it is evident that it will not attain anything like its greatest productivity until the state learns to make use of the vast supplies of water now allowed to run to waste for irrigation and power. Mr Lloyd George, British Prime Minister, said recently, the secret of the future lay in the adequate exploitation of the great natural resources. Cheaper power, said Mr Lloyd George, would revolutionise industry. Labour was demanding shorter hours, but willing hands were shrouded in the clouds which did not demand an eight-hour day. The advice is not new by any means, because year after year, reference is made in the Governor's speech at the opening of Parliament to the necessity for water conservation and irrigation, and valuable information has been collected at times by the engineers of the Water Supply Department. That, however, is as far as the good intentions go. Because of an unfavourable feature in its geological structure, Australia is destined to seasons of periodic drought. The next story comes from the recorder in Port Pirie, South Australia, who is sharing a problem given by the Women's Institute in Victoria Street, London. Mrs Strachey in London said there are 200,000 war widows, 9,000 women with blind husbands, 7,000 women with deaf husbands and unnumbered spinsters of the new poor class who must work or starve in their old age. Pay should be according to output and work done. Dealing with the old argument that women are more liable to illness and therefore the quality of their work could not compare with that of men, she replied that it is true enough, but only because almost every woman who works outside works at home as well. If women had a full wage, they could pay someone to do the work of the house. Mrs Strachey suggested that in the teaching profession, all should be paid alike, but should contribute to a joint fund, which should be allocated with state assistance to the help of men with family responsibilities. Across to news from the medicine and health world, and the Bow Desert Times in Queensland reports on how stutterers can unstutter. A novel cure for stuttering has been tried. This is to educate a left-handed child to use his right hand and to turn a right-handed child into a left-handed one. The physician responsible for this treatment cites one case in which stuttering associated with left-handedness has been cured by changing the left-handedness into right-handedness and drilling the voice at the same time. He also instances several cases in which attempts to make a right-handed child of an otherwise normal left-handed one have resulted in such stuttering that the attempts have been given up. The actions of the right hand are governed by the left-hand side of the brain, those of the left hand by the right side of the brain. In right-handed persons, the speech centre is on the left side of the brain. In left-handed persons, it is on the right side. The doctor surmises that in stutterers there is an injury to the speech centre and that in all probability the corresponding centre on the opposite side of the brain is normal. So by training the less used hand to take the place of the more used, the motor centre will be transferred to the opposite side of the brain. The process may be slow, but when the struggle between the two centres is over, it seems likely that the stuttering will vanish. Following that story, this piece from the Daily Mail was reported in Hobart's The Mercury. 
the great success of vaccines in preventing typhoid fever and other diseases during the war has raised hopes that in the course of time we may be able to get more or less protection against the majority of infectious diseases. At present, the most interesting development is the use of vaccine against colds, bronchitis and other winter diseases. Inoculation for colds has been practiced for several years past, but improved methods have greatly increased its efficacy. One of the most important of these is detoxication, or removal of the poisons created by the germs of which the vaccine consists. A Scotsman, Dr David Thompson, has the merit of devising the most successful mode of detoxication. As a result of removal of these poisons, very much larger doses can be given than formerly, and with no ill results, so that preventing or curing a cold is now only a matter of enduring a slight pinprick repeated two or three times. This is now the fashionable remedy. The inoculation is so simple that any doctor can carry it out, and in fact doctors even in remote parts of the country are treating many patients. Meanwhile, another story from Britain reported in the advertiser Adelaide, South Australia. A learned gentleman reminds the British people that tea is an insidious drug and that they would be all the better without it. We were told recently, too, in the Sunday Chronicle, that we should all be better without the sugar we take in it. And we have been warned that the milk, which softens its harshness, abounds in deadly microbes. Bread, as we know, is a starchy compound that clogs the system and ossificates the arteries. And meat is a generator of the fatal uric acid that shortens lives. In fact, it has been demonstrated by various authorities that everything we eat and drink is poison. Clearly, we should be all the better, and a lot better off, if we refrain from eating and drinking at all. And most of us just now heartily wish we could. We're going to take a short break for some advertisements now, but when we come back... It'll be time for sport and weather. Colds and throat troubles make growing children dull. Neglected colds hinder growth and blunt the faculties. Dr Sheldon's new discovery relieves colds at once. Take a bottle of this famous cough remedy home tonight. Price one and six, or in larger size bottles which are more economical for family use as they contain two and a half times the quantity of the one and six size and are sold at three shillings. Obtainable everywhere. No matter which it is, whether it's a hard cold, a lingering cough or a sudden attack of croup, there is nothing equal to Chamberlain's Cough Remedy. Experience has proved that it is the best medicine for coughs and colds of any description. Chamberlain's Cough Remedy contains nothing injurious and can be given with perfect safety to the youngest and most delicate child. Sold by all chemists and storekeepers and at Cooperative Society Mount Gambier. A clear complexion? How often is an otherwise good complexion spoiled by freckles, tan, sunburn and other disfiguring blemishes? Opal cream not only eradicates these disfigurements, but renders the skin delicately soft and smooth. Price one shilling and sixpence, obtainable only from F.W. Johnson, pharmaceutical chemist, Walker Street Casino, telephone 64. That's telephone 64. Hello and welcome back. 
This was the news for the 2nd of January 1920. Moving into the sport and recreation news now, and a new record to Victor Harbour was reported in the advertiser from Adelaide, South Australia. Captain Butler flew to Victor Harbour yesterday to give an exhibition of aerial feats. He left Nailsworth in the morning and returned soon after five o'clock. The outward journey in the teeth of a stiff southerly wind occupied 35 minutes, but with the wind behind him on the return trip, which he made via Yankalilla, Captain Butler reached his aerodrome 27 minutes after leaving the southern watering place. People who have done the tedious journey in the so-called express train to Victor Harbour, which takes 3 hours and 33 minutes, may feel envious of the swift flight of an aeroplane. The journey was uneventful, save that the aviator had to fly nearer the earth than he quite liked, owing to the clouds being very low. In the Blue Mountain Echo, New South Wales, the following story comes from Lura. Eric Affley put up a unique and at the same time a most meritorious performance at the Lura Golf Links over the week. They were talking golf and a casual remark as to what a man could do in the dark led to a wager. Eric, accepting a Deffy that he could not go round in the dark under 50 doing the nine holes. Armed with small electric flashes, candles, matches and other ammunition, about a dozen spectators went out to see the test, the first stroke being made at 8.30. The night was cloudy and very dark, and to make matters worse, a thick mist complicated matters, especially at the seventh and eight holes, with steady rain setting in for the ninth. Playing with nothing short of uncanny accuracy, Appley completed the round in 42, bogey being 36. It is worthy of note that not a single ball was lost, the only mishaps being a broken spoon at the second hole, the head of the club could not incidentally be found, and a split mid-iron at the sixth hole. Finally, this story of action in amongst the recreation, coming from the propeller in Hurstville, New South Wales. In Gawley Bay, opposite Sans Souci, on Saturday last, just before dusk, a huge tiger shark created considerable excitement among visitors and boating parties. The monster looked about 16 feet long and was seen for some time swimming at great speed, about a quarter of a mile off the bay. He attacked one boat but failed to overturn the craft and sustained a severe battering from one of the crew, who used an oar with good effect. The shark made one charge under the boat, but a heavy blow blocked him and he withdrew. The paddle was broken, but nothing more was seen of the shark. It is the first time in the recollection of regular campers that anything like it has been seen so close inshore. There was an unusually high tide, and this probably accounts for the unexpected visit. And to wrap up today's news, here's the weather. From the Braidwood Dispatch and Mining Journal in New South Wales, rain fell on Wednesday, which registered 78 points at the Braidwood office. The fall was the result of a very heavy storm, which lasted for nearly an hour. The street gutters were unable to carry the inrush of water and overflowed in many places. Notwithstanding the good rain in the early part of December, the strong westerlies last week had dried up the paddocks and the pastures had begun to wear a parched look. This week's rain, however, has completely changed the whole outlook of things, and our graziers and men on the land now carry a comprehensive smile around with them, which is good to see. From the Daily Advertiser in Wagga Wagga, 
Pleasant weather conditions ruled yesterday. The sky was cloudy, but there were no signs of rain. For the 24 hours ended 9am yesterday, two points of rain fell in Wagga. And finally, from the Daily News in Perth, the glorious weather of the three previous days gave way to a sudden thunderstorm last night, which was accompanied by most vivid flashes of lightning. Shortly after 10 o'clock, there was a heavy downpour of rain, and showers continued at intervals throughout the night. This morning, rain fell continuously, and the bowling carnival had to be postponed. Well, that's all the news we have. For the 2nd of January 1920, this was the news. This Was The News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Sixth Symphony and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, 16 January. I'm Broderick Matthews, and this was the news. Music